joined a pool league. Ooh. I know. So it's competitive, pretty competitive. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. How'd you do? I did all right. I, I won. I won my uh, my match. We lost altogether, but it was close. Well, the, yeah. key, the key is you need to just really frequently go to bars. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna learn how to pace myself. Is what I'm saying. Well, isn't pool one of those games where you're slightly better if you've had just a couple? Oh, absolutely. Of, uh, drinks. Absolutely. Just like driving, it gets a yes. little <laughs> bit better. The, to be clear, that is a joke. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, we'll take a look at the results from last week's election and what they mean, and the ongoing budgeting process for 2022. Also, yet another local school is facing some scrutiny after the New Orleans Public School District alleges special education violations at Dr. Martin Luther King Charter School. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. All right, Michael. The mayoral election turned out to be not much of a surprise. We kind of was telegraphed what was going to happen. Can you run through exactly what happened and how it looked? As you said, it was pretty widely expected that uh, Cantrell was going to win this uh, re-election campaign. Um, you know, incumbent mayors in New Orleans, um, incumbent politicians in general always have a leg up. And that's what happened. And, and you know, th- there were some, I think, you know, the big question with the election was how big of a victory was she going to secure? Um, there had been, you know, some talks of, you know, if she had just kind of scraped by with 51 percent, would she have the same type of mandate in her second term? Would she have the same kind of uh, uh, claim to leadership, you know, if she kind of got a, a smaller margin of victory. I don't even know how true that may have been, but but at the end of the day, she got around 65% of, of the vote, which is a, you know, a pretty significant margin. Obviously, in, in this case, there weren't any challengers that had, you know, big, well-funded campaigns or, or mass grass, you know, uh, grassroots movements. So there was not really that much of a significant challenge here. And, and I think, you know, ultimately what this, a, a lot of what this election came down to, you know, a lot of what defined Cantrell's first uh, term was these series of disasters that she's had to deal with, you know, starting in 2019, right? We had the hard rock collapse followed by the cyber attack, uh, followed by the coronavirus, um, you know, getting through um, the, the George Floyd demonstrations into Hurricane Ida. Um, and so, you know, for the past couple of years, it's just been this kind of seemingly unending series of disasters. And, um, you know, when you're an incumbent running for mayor, you know, one strong argument is always, you know, my opponent may not know what it actually takes to do this job while I am, you know, in this job doing it from day to day. And I think when it comes to disasters, you know, it, it uh, I think that argument gets a little stronger. I think, you know, the, the argument to uh, you don't want to. Uh, change horses midstream um, gets a little stronger, you know, as the Cantrell administration gets us uh, out of, you know, these disasters and tries to, to, to get the city, you know, on a path to recovery. Um, you know, it would have been hard to, to make the case that we needed to completely change leadership right now, uh, I think. So I think that those are some of the, the key points from the election. Again, you know, 
I think that the defining negative things of Cantrell's first term, many of them were not in her control. Um, they were rather things that, you know, were either natural disasters or uh, things that were not in control that she then had to respond to rather than kind of self-created disasters. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, that the, she's gotten a couple of different well, first of all, you know, as Michael said, the, the margin was convincing. It was six, you know, sixty-five percent. That's better. You know, that's better that she did than she did in her in her uh, first election in twenty seventeen. It's better than Mayor Landrieu did, I believe, in twenty fourteen. He secured something like sixty-three percent. So you know, it's a pretty good mandate. Uh, you know, on the other hand, it was very low turnout election. When we're expecting a low thirties percentage. For, for municipal elections where there's no um, federal positions on the ballot, like senator, congress, or president, obviously, is the highest turnout. Um, you know, it, it was still even lower than average for municipal elections. It was somewhere in the 28% range, only about 75,000 people voted. So, you know, on, on the one hand, she has, a, she has a, a mandate from the people who voted. On the other hand, a lot of people, a lot more people, or more people than usual stayed home. And I would say, you know, the criticisms of her have, you know, when you're talking about the not Cantrell camp, you know, when I was when I was, again, you know, looking at the, the precinct map, sort of the interesting thing about it. And this was actually predicted, you know, this was actually reflected in a poll that came out shortly before the election is that um, it's it's not a political monolith. The, the people who, who voted for someone other than Cantrell, she performed uh, her weakest performance was in. Precincts that, um, you know, in the last presidential election went more for Trump and she performed weakest in precincts in the last primary presidential election that that performed best for for Bernie Sanders. Um, So the common, you know, the common theme between those those two types of groups of precincts is they tend to be uh, whiter or at least less black um, than other precincts in the city. Um, and, uh, you know, that was something, that was something, there was a UNO poll like a week or two before the election that, that, that found that her support among black voters was about 70%, where it was only around 42% among white voters. So, you know, that was read purely, I, 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 you know, I was sort of afraid that, you know, that was going to be interpreted solely as a poll about her performance during COVID, um, because I think I think there are, you know, from the anti-Cantrell camp, I think there are several different strains of criticism. One, one of them, you know, especially from more conservative voters is certainly the COVID protocols here, which have been sort of more stringent than the less rest of the state. But there's also been, uh, you know, there's also been, uh, you know, more left left wing pushback against her specifically for what, um, you know, the gambit described as a kind of authoritarian tendency. Um, you know, I'm not saying that that's true. That's just the perception. So, you know, it's 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 an it's an interesting it's an interesting results map with her. So, how does this inform or not um, one of her signature pieces that she's trying to push forward, which is the move um, city hall into Armstrong Park? We just have to see what happens next with that because you know she had her her her, her main spokesperson came out and called it dead in the water. Um, you know, we found out. And I haven't I haven't checked it in the last couple of days to see if it's still there. But we found out after that statement was made that that they were they still had a, a solicitation for bids out there. And uh, you know there there are people who have, who are predicting that you know we'll go right back to it. 
Yeah, the the bid the bid solicitations are still up as of today. There there are people who are predicting now that she's she's won decisively that we'll go right back to to going to you know Armstrong Park or City Hall, um, and you know there are, there are others who believe that she's going to stick to what she said before the election, which was that it was quote dead in the water. So we'll just have to keep an eye out on what's going on there. Okay. Yeah, and the only thing I'd add, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if her governing style, if her relations to the public change at all in the second term. Um, you know, she's term limited, so there's no kind of election in front of her now to, to look out for. You know, that, that thought process won't be the same. And, you know, when it comes to mayors, especially, you know, uh, uh, you know, mayor in a democratic city in a red state, you know, there's not really a, a natural nest, next election for Cantrell necessarily. Um, not that she won't run for public office again, there's obviously options, but, you know, she may not be thinking about running an election, uh, you know, in the near future. So I will see if that, you know, changes how she governs and connects with the public at all. Okay. And the other big race, the at-large council race ended with a clear result uh, than what we had maybe thought was going to happen. Tell us what happened there. Yeah, the, the city council uh, races were, were uh, actually kind of interesting. Um, you know, the, definitely the biggest one we were looking at was that um, at-large race. That seat had been previously filled by Jason Williams. He vacated that seat in early uh, 2021 to take over as district attorney. Um, we've had an interim council member since then who did not run. So that seat was wide open. And, and it kind of came down to uh, Kristen Palmer, who is currently a district council member, uh, and J.P. Morrell. There was another kind of a, a more of a long shot candidate, Bart Everson, who was running with the Green Party, um, who did not garner all that much support. Um, there was also originally, if we remember, a, a third significant candidate in this race, uh, Jared Brossett, currently District D council person. Um, he dropped out of the race out of um, being uh, booked on a DUI charge. Um, but, you know, the you know, but he was still on the ballot, which was important. And he was still on the ballot. And I think he garnered about 10 percent, 11 percent of the vote. Um, so still significant. And, and you know, I, th this had been the most uh, intense race leading up to the election, um, you know, when it came to city council by far. Um, you know, in, in the beginning, Kristen Palmer and Jared Brossett had, had uh, uh, endorsed each other, even though they were racing against each other, basically on this platform of pick one of us as long as you don't pick J.P. Morrell. Um, and, you know, Kristen Palmer had some mailers out that went after J.P. Morrell's brothers, who were police officers for um, using political connections, uh, allegedly, to, to get better assignments. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, it, you know the, the, the big question was, was, uh, either Morrell or Palmer are going to be able to get over that 50% margin or whether this was going to go to a runoff. And uh, Morrell was able to get just over that margin with 50.6% with of the vote. Um, and so he's going to take that seat. That one really came down to the wire. I was, you know, everybody was thinking that was going to be a runoff until almost midnight on election night. Like uh, when, the, when the Algiers results suddenly came in is when it, it, when it was finally determined. And uh, yeah, he only won by 50.6%. So he was just barely over that threshold. Um, I, think, I think Palmer was probably hoping for a few more votes to go to Brissette, you know, in spite of Brissette having suspended his campaign. You know, shortly before the election, uh, she, was, she was asked, I can't remember by whom, if she was going to uh, take away her endorsement, but she declined to do that, even though he was not really running anymore. Okay. What's on next month's ballot? 
Yeah, so, so looking at city council, you know, basically we have our two at-large council members. Th those are set. Um, you know, we talked about J.P. Morrell and Helena Moreno, an incumbent, one with a, a massive uh, victory, I think, of 80%, 86%, I believe it was. Um, so we, we have our uh, two at-larges. And uh, that margin for uh, Helena Moreno immediately got people started talking about a, a, a mayoral run after Cantrell is done with her second term, which I think Cantrell briefly referenced uh, none too happily in her uh, in her victory speech that night. She said something like, we're not going to talk about who's going to be the mayor four years from now. I'm the mayor now. Wow. <laughs> I, I didn't catch that. But yeah, I, Moreno's run, you know, it, it's it, the rumor of Moreno eventually running for mayor uh, after Cantrell, you know, that that's been around for a little while, and I think um, you know this weekend's victory definitely puts a little fuel to that fire. Um, you know, clearly very, very popular. That's a you know even for an incumbent, um, if we didn't face a lot of huge challengers, that's a that's a pretty big percentage. Um, mm. You know, so so when we look at city council members, then you know we, we've got our two at larges. Then there's five district seats. Uh, one of only one of those district seats was actually finally determined on uh, uh, during this weekend. Um, that was uh, District A, Joe Giarusso. Um, he's the incumbent and he retained his seat. Other four uh, are heading to runoffs. Two of those runoffs are going to have incumbents in them. So uh, in District B, sitting councilman J Jay Banks is going to face Leslie Harris. Uh, and in District E, current city councilwoman Sydney Nguyen will face Oliver Thomas. Um, Oliver Thomas uh, is a former city council member um, who resigned from office amid a, a corruption scandal that he eventually pleaded guilty to, but he's trying to make his return uh, to the city council chamber now, but that's gonna be an interesting runoff to watch. Mm. And then there's two districts where we're definitely gonna see a new face because it's, it's between two people, um, two non-incumbents. So in district C, uh, Stephanie Bridges is facing off against Freddie King. Uh, and in district D, we're gonna see Eugene Green face off uh, uh, against Troy Glover. So those are going to be the ones to watch in the upcoming election. And then, you know, the, the, the other big piece of the December election is going to be uh, two millage votes. Um, so there's going to be votes on on renewing um, uh, property taxes that go to the library uh, and another one that goes to a housing fund um, that that, you know, is supposed to. Uh, uh, the, the, the proceeds are supposed to go to either affordable housing projects or, or blight uh, remediation projects. So um, those are two significant uh, pieces that are going to be in, going before us in December. Okay. And what's briefly, what's happening with the 2022 budget hearings? Yeah, so we've wrapped up budget hearings. So, so basically, you know, just a review of how the process works. Um, you know, the, the mayor will come out with a draft budget. Um, what you know, what she thinks every city department needs, but the ultimate power to set the budget is the city, it lies with the city council. So then the city council um, holds hearings, these department by department hearings, where you know department directors will come in and justify why they need the money they're getting. You know, so we've just finished those hearings process, and now uh, the the council is going to decide whether it wants to make any tweaks to the mayor's original draft budget based off those hearings, and they have to do that by the end of the month. I believe. Well, they have to do it by December 1st. So they're actually, whole, they have a, a council regular meeting scheduled for December 1st, which is a Wednesday um, instead of their normal Thursday, which is, which is, you know, in past years, that was pretty common to do it um, on the last possible day. 
it gives council members more of an opportunity to spend some time with, uh, with the budget and propose potential amendments, talk to constituents. Um, the, those amendments to the budget very rarely move all that significantly from the mayor's version, but I wouldn't be surprised to see quite a few amendments on, 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 on the budget this year. Yeah, I, I'd say, you know, I, I've been covering, you know, a bunch of budget hearings now. The changes aren't usually like radical redrawing of the city's priorities. Usually they're, you know, um, either, you know, specific points of interest for council members or, you know, something that the council has taken a specific interest in. But it's not, you know, like, like Charles has said, it, it, it's not like they're going to completely reframe, you know, how much, what percent of the budget is going to criminal justice versus schooling. You know, those big, big budget questions um, tend to kind of be left to the mayor. I'll, I'll say one other interesting thing from budget hearings is that um, it, they all seem to go pretty smoothly, except the ethics review board never showed up. So in the council members at the end of the, the budget hearings were kind of a little peeved about that. Um, uh, so, you know, they, they basically said at the end of the meeting that at some point the ethics review board is going to have to justify their budget before they actually pass this thing. Hmm. But anyway, I thought that was a kind of a weird weird moment in the budget hearings that the ethics review board simply didn't show up. Um, but Although yeah. technically under the charter, they have to allocate them a certain percentage of the general fund. Right, right. Yeah. They noted that too, that they you know, don't really have a choice in allocating the money, but they are nonetheless doing Just a little hint of irony, I guess, not showing up for a meeting. Right. The yeah. ethics board. Anyway, all right, thanks, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, the chief operating officer at The Lens. The New Orleans Press Club just awarded eight Excellence in Journalism awards to The Lens, including first and second place for government and political reporting, and first place for this very podcast you're listening to now. The Lens is a nonprofit public media. You can tell because of the high quality of what you read each day. You can tell because of the stories and research and doggedness that we use to bring you the news that matters. And you can also tell because we ask you directly to support this service that makes such a difference in your life. Your investment supports high quality news, in-depth reporting, and connections to your neighbors and the world. Please make a contribution today at thelensnola.org. And thank you. So Nick, the results in the at-large council races and of course the mayoral race mean that the top of the ticket will be focused on criminal justice what happened with what you were watching last weekend? Uh, Susan Hudson, who is challenging incumbent Marlon Gussman, um, who's been sheriff since 2004, uh, forced him into a runoff election, which was, uh, I think, a pretty big surprise to a lot of people. Um, you know, like I said, Gussman's been sheriff for nearly two decades. No Orleans Parish uh, sheriff, no incumbent Orleans Parish sheriff has lost an election since uh, the early 1970s. So this is really, you know, the first major challenge that Gusman's faced, certainly since at least 2014. So, so yeah, it was it was big. I was at the at Susan Hudson, who she is the former uh, independent police monitor. I was at her her election watch party on Saturday, and I mean, I think her campaign was they were thrilled. So they 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 narrowly pushed Gusman into a runoff. He had 48 percent of the vote, and they had 35 percent. 
but even with those results, I think they were they were pretty thrilled. So, how do they align, and how do they differ so far, and what's what? How's that shaping up? Hudson has really cast herself as as a as a progressive sheriff, sort of in line with uh, the progressive district attorneys that we've seen getting elected uh, across the country, and and here in New Orleans, Jason Williams, um, really sort of focused on trying to to reduce the the incarcerated population, trying to think of ways to, to make, you know, jails and prisons less, less of, uh, <laughs> uh, less bad places and, and kind of increase the, the dignity to people who are, who are in there. And, you know, to be fair, Gusman would, would say at least to, that, that he's, he's trying to do some of that as well. Although, you know, he's cast efforts to reduce the jail population as, as dangerous as, you know, letting criminals out on the streets. That's sort of where where they differ. Gusman is definitely uh, playing more toward the tough on crime kind of traditional sheriff um, role, and and Hudson is, is, is challenging that. It is kind of an interesting framing because I think Gusman, and, you know, I think, you know, maybe he was paying attention to the DA's race last year. I think he's, um, at, at the same time that he's, his campaign is call, calling Susan Hudson a you know a dangerous radical controlled by outsider groups. Um, he's also framing himself as more of a reformer than I think he has in past elections. To take the issue of the content, consent decree, which has been going on since 2013, he's sort of framing himself as as someone who has actually been on the ground doing the reform work. Whereas I think the Hudson supporters would look at the same issue and say, well. Look, we're, we've been in this consent decree for eight years now. We're still not in compliance with it, and uh, and you know, in fact, there were several years in the middle of this consent decree where uh, Gusman's control of the jail was taken away from him uh, by a federal judge. So you know, it's a it's it's an interesting looking race. Yeah, and you know, kind of a similar dynamic is happening with the jail population. Gusman is taking credit for this dramatic reduction. You know, before Katrina, there were over six thousand people in the jail. Uh, now it's down to around eight hundred or so. Um, so Gusman has kind of been taking credit for this and saying, like, look how how much we've reduced the jail size. But you know, in fact, he he had frequently argued for a larger jail um, when the city council passed a bed cap back in what was that in two thousand four uh, two thousand twenty eleven twenty eleven. Yeah, he he fought against it. He argued that, that the jail needed to be, you know, several times larger than the than the cap that they ultimately passed. So, I think for you know reform groups and and people who have been watching it for a long time, that's kind of a, a, a frustrating uh, thing to hear from him. But hmm. um, but yeah, we'll see we'll, how, it, how it all plays out. Does it seem like it's <laughs> going to get nasty? It, it there's already been some shots across the bow, if you will, on social media. Yeah, so Gusman put out an ad this week describing Hudson as a, as a radical extremist controlled by outside interests who wants to free criminals and sort of t- features a, a clip of, of the executive director of the Orleans Parish Prison Reform Coalition, who is frequently uh, a local group that, that's, you know, been really instrumental in, in uh, attempting to, to limit the jail size and lower the jail population and, and has butted heads with Gusman frequently and, and features Gusman's ad features, you know, a clip of the executive, uh, the executive director of that organization, um, 
being critical of the jail and you, I think at some point using the word abolish, abolish the jail along with some, some pretty ominous music. So, you know, you can get a sense of what the next several weeks are going to be like and, and kind of the angle that, that Gusman's taking. There's also been some, some pretty negative uh, ads run, run about Gusman with regards to, to the conditions of the jail over the, over the past several years. So, yeah, I think it, I think it will probably get pretty, pretty negative. And... Outsider groups that Gusman is referencing is, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, you know, the sort of at least anti-Gusman, if not, if not explicitly pro-Hudson campaign work and fundraising has been done by a group called the PAC for Justice, PAC Political Action Committee. Um, and uh, the, the director of the uh, OPPRC, she's featured in that ad in part because she is, uh, I believe, one of the co-chairs of the PAC for Justice. So, you know, that's, that's where Gusman is making that connection. Hmm. I think you could definitely see that the um, his tone of ads took a took a change, drastic change this week, especially thinking about the email I got yesterday from that just says, who is Susan Hudson, right? There's really, he's really kind of uh, taken that that shift. Um, like Nick said, I think it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks. Right. Yeah, you kind of wonder if he if he thought that he really needed to run run a you know serious campaign prior to this, or and and maybe the results on Saturday sort of made him realize he's going he's gonna, he's gonna to need to probably do some work. Although he did have a, a pretty decent lead over her um, and almost captured the 50% plus one that he needed. I believe it came in at 48%. And, um, you know, I was also, you know, I've also been looking at the precinct maps this week. And I would say that, you know, for, for the Hudson campaign, They've got to. They've got to have a pretty healthy turnout in in a lot of parts of the city that tend to have somewhat lower turnout on average than than the precincts that Gusman captured. Um, you know, he got he got most of Algiers, um, most of uh, Gentilly and Lakeview, and those are three um, you know pretty high turnout parts of the city. She got a lot of the the riverfront precincts. Um, which vary, but kind of her strongest precincts um, in the, you know, the downriver uh, air neighborhoods, you know, Maroney, Bywater, do tend to have somewhat lower turnout during, uh, especially during municipal runoffs with, where there's no major person on the ticket like a mayor. Okay, so you talked a little bit about tactics um, and maybe that, maybe that ended up costing him the majority here he had another what might be read as a tactic prior to the election where he did not appear in front of the uh, budget hearings to do his 2022 budget you know i don't know if we can read it as as a tactic or not but anyway it had the effect of him not presenting his 2022 budget he delayed how do you think that worked out well as you said if it was a tactic and you know to to avoid i think i think what frustrated some people, as they thought it was a tactic to to avoid scrutiny prior to the election. Now that he's in a runoff, he, he presented his his budget on Tuesday, and it gave people his opponents an opportunity to to you know stand up and, and criticize him to you know with him present. So it didn't uh, ultimately ultimately work out maybe as 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 he would have hoped. All right, thanks, Nick. Thank you, Marta and schools. You keep a close eye on citations that the NOLA Public School District issues to schools for policy violations. 
There was a new one this week. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so um, district officials on Tuesday announced they had issued a so-called level two warning of non-compliance, the most severe warning that they issued to schools. And they um, issued that to Dr. King Charter School for um, failure to provide special education services. What specifically? Yeah, there was a number of allegations in the warning letter. Um, They said, you know, outrightly that the school wasn't providing some federally protected and um, required services that students should be getting. They also said that the school was failing to take into account uh, maybe external reviews that had been done for children and that they weren't utilizing those properly. Um, And they also said that the school was not or didn't, quote, take jurisdiction, unquote, of of certain files that, you know, they clearly should have been referencing um, to know how to properly care for students. Um, And, you know, I'm guessing that those could have been potentially transfer students or students who had new um, reviews and they just weren't utilizing those documents like they should have been. Mm. And we talk about special education a lot. The school district has been under a, a consent decree because of some issues in the past. They're trying to get out from under a consent decree right now. And so this comes at a, it's a particularly sensitive time. Yeah, it's a, almost a bit of ironic time. And I thought because they're, they're gonna require um, Dr. King Charter to have an independent monitor or third party monitor oversee their special education services for the next six months and report on a monthly basis. Um, well, like you said, at the same time, they're having to do the same thing under a federal order from a, a judge right now. Right. Yeah, I think the I think the monitor because I've not, I haven't seen that before in a level two warning from the school district that they're putting a monitor in even for special education stuff. Um, I think the monitor was probably a strategic move on the district's part with an eye toward the lawsuit to show that you know even if we're not being monitored under court order, we're still willing to do this monitoring. Um, for for instances where there are special education violations. The other thing that the district may have going for it is that it did identify the violations, which is really what the, you know, in spirit, this consent decree is meant to fix the problem, but the actual mechanics of the consent decree are really more about keeping an eye on what the problems are and identifying them rather than actually fixing them. Um, which has been a criticism from the plaintiff's side in the in the consent decree over the years. Is Friends of King in any particular danger of being shut down right now? They they will start to let everybody know what's happening in the future for schools. So their charter is up for renewal this year, along with um, many other charters. And what was of note this week, this is renewal week, actually. So this is a pretty big week in the public school system. This is when you find out whether schools are going to stay open, whether they're going to close next summer. And we're actually like to see some big decisions on that today. Um, but was was of note earlier this week was that King Charter was left off of a list um, that the chief schools accountability officer was presenting. And he said, oh, you'll notice, you know, I, we don't have King on here. Um, you know, we're, uh, we're trying to gather some additional information and we're going to have a recommendation on that in December. So that, in fact, is going to be a month behind the other schools, which is um, certainly interesting. Uh, King right now has a latest letter grade was a D that could qualify them for a three year renewal. Um, and, and obviously, the special education warning is is factoring into this. So I'm not sure exactly what else is going on. The district did additional areas of noncompliance, but they wouldn't provide any further details on that. Yeah, the December d- date on the decision does coincide with a, dead, a series of deadlines that the that the King School has to meet um, in the warning letter that was issued this week. So that's likely not a coincidence. That's got to be really worrying for all those parents and the staff at that school if they're no. 
Yeah, I mean, this is something we go through every year. This is a, this is anxiety that people feel every fall, especially if they're not in an A or B or C rated school, that they might have to figure out something new for next year. Um, right. You know, this is just kind of built into our system uh, in New Orleans that that every year is you know there's a possibility that your that your school you know may not be around next year. Did you say, Marta, or did I did I mishear uh, that at a D rating you still get a three year renewal? At a D rating, if you're also showing growth in certain areas of your student population, you can qualify for a three-year renewal. Okay, so you'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, yeah, we'll know that answer in December. Um, and then, like I said, by the time this podcast comes out, I'm, I, we're going to have news on other schools in the city for sure. Right, okay. Briefly, COVID numbers? Uh, they went back up this week a little bit. Um, ticking back up, we did see, I think there was 50 active cases that we have right now, up from 32 the week before, and more quarantines again. Um, well, we did see what I thought was particularly interesting was I believe Plessy had eight student cases and Lusher had nine student cases. And most of the time we're seeing numbers in the very low single digits at campuses. Um, those, those did seem a little bit higher. Um, Plessy CEO said, you know, those were attributed to uh, siblings and sleepovers. So she thought they had a pretty good grasp on where those cases come from. Lusher also provided a breakdown, but they didn't they didn't have any, you know, necessarily ideas where the cases were potentially coming from in their school community. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing about it is cases have been, you know, pretty low for a while in the schools. So you really, you really notice those slight movements of 18 more cases a lot more. But, you know, keeping it in perspective, you know, eight or eight or nine cases can be attributable to one or two incidents rather than a systemic problem. But, you know, it's something to keep an eye out to see if we still see that growth um, in those schools or the whole system in the, in the coming weeks. Obviously, we're happy that, you know, kids can start getting vaccinated now. They probably won't fully be vaccinated until the holiday break, but that's going to be another a test of our system, you know, the Thanksgiving holiday and the holidays after that. Right. Yeah, exactly. but, uh, but, but, you know, what, what we do expect to see, and I think we've mentioned this before, is, is, uh, is the quarantine numbers to go down and not have that same ratio of you know three or four or five quarantines per case because we're gonna because you're not required to, to if you're ace if you're non-symptomatic you're not required to quarantine if you've been vaccinated okay well marta thank you thank you all right everybody thank you for your work this week have a good week thank you thank you bye guys bye this is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>